You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that knows the true shortest sad story is for sale, master's degree, never used. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today we're going to talk about the jazz age and how the American dream has been garbage for like about at least a hundred years. This is Megan using her master's degree. Love that affect. Love the love the feeling, the passion, the the just sheer effort that you put into everything you do. I can feel it. Okay. All right. And speaking, oh. of course, about The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Well, I'm talking about the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, you can. No one can stop you. I don't know why you got to jump into the book. We're not in the book yet. We're in the Twenties. Well, because we, we got to talk about what book we're going to talk about. Because the whole point is you're providing historical context for the book. I'll provide historical context to lead into the book. No. I'm going to say the title of the book, and then you're going to say, let's learn about the 20s. No. Yes. Oh, I'm just going to edit it together that way anyway. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> she has the power of the edit button, people. I do. Guess what? I'm going to somehow manage to piece together you saying that you have a baby dick. So to start us off, to uh, give us um, some context for the world of The Great Gatsby, because... I mean, let's be real. Um, how does this relate to today's people, this world of wealth and excess and copious amounts of doing the Charleston? RJ, you want to help us out there? And flapper girls. Well, yeah, presumably they're the ones doing the Charleston. So the Roaring Twenties, Megan. You ever hear of them? I was literally just referring to them. So, I mean, you know, go on. You want to see? You want to say it like an old-timey radio guy? Yes. <laughs> Dateline, 1920. The start of the Roaring Twenties. American industry is booming. Culture, exciting. Prohibition, in full swing. America well on its way to being the world leader. It's like I'm there. So Megan, the very beginning of the Roaring Twenties, things were looking up in America. Um, people were feeling pretty good because they had more money. Extravagance was a big thing. Spending money that you maybe not have had a decade ago. Um, and the Great War was over. Ha-cha-cha! Um, in retrospect, <laughs> after the Depression followed in the 30s, the 1920s seemed like a time that should never have happened, that people always look back and go, they should have saved, they should have been more reserved. But at the time, people didn't think that way. The Great Depression had not happened yet. I feel like we're living in a time people will look back on and say shouldn't have happened. And in the 20s, that's when we got things like automobiles or horseless carriages. Ooh. Motion pictures, ah. radio, and this is really the beginning of what we would refer to nowadays as modernity. And it was also the start of the Jazz Age. That thing we just talked about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, obviously this is not a history podcast. I mean, it's kind of a history podcast. But what matters is um, a young man in the midst of this time with the extremely unfortunate name... A Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. Do you think he's named after somebody? No, you know, I don't think so. 
So you got to just imagine that you have a group of people who had just fought World War One over in Europe. They come back to America. They'd seen some pretty bad stuff overseas, and they come back and they see people living extravagant lifestyles with parties, automobiles, and how, how dare they with their extravagant automobiles? <laughs> that they're kind of disillusioned and kind of cynical about the whole thing. That here they are. They just saw the worst of humanity, and now they see. Basically, throughout the Western culture, people celebrating. It wasn't strictly an American thing, but a whole Western European outlook. Um, among the writers that were particularly disillusioned are the writers that were part of the lost generation. Usually, when people refer to them, they are referring to the aforementioned F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, or Gertrude Stein. So why, why are they the lost generation? Couldn't they have asked for directions? Yeah, that's right. You're not the only one who gets to deliver flat bullshit jokes. <laughs> well, Meg, perhaps they were lost because those three in particular all wound up in Paris. They didn't know where they were. I mean, I think they knew they were there to get get hammered and have lots of Parisian sex. But, you know, nobody was more up in that puss than Gertrude Stein. But that is another story for another day. So the hero at the heart of this podcast today... F. Scott Fitzgerald, born in 1896, all the way to 1940. Uh, Fitzgerald was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the infantry that fought in World War One. During his time as a second lieutenant, he met Zelda Zaire, who later became Zelda Fitzgerald. Oh, she threw away that sweet, sweet alliteration. Now, not to lead too much into The Great Gatsby, but a lot of Fitzgerald's life was defined by his own poor upbringing for example when he asked zelda to marry him zelda initially refused not thinking he would be able to support the two of them she wanted to uh she wanted to take up with some more financially stable dudes which i mean yeah that totally doesn't color the plot of the great gatsby at all and in the end the two of them got married had a kid a daughter named her Francis Scott Fitzgerald. Again, Megan, I wonder, was that daughter named after someone? Who can say? The answer is lost to time. F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald had a tumultuous uh, marriage, to put it mildly. And part of this was due to the fact that Zelda Fitzgerald suffered from schizophrenia and... You know, they really didn't know what to do about that at the time. You know, it was, they just kind of looked at her and was just like, mmm, hysterical woman disease, I guess. And she was put in an asylum that later burned to the ground. Um, but there's one thing, there's one little excerpt that I feel like says a lot about both their marriage and F. Scott Fitzgerald, but it also might not be true. <laughs> I want it to be true. I want it to be true. I want to believe this story more than any small child has ever wanted to believe in Santa Claus. But it came from Hemingway. So it's probably not true, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's great. So this one time, uh, old Ernest and F. Scott are uh, chilling out and having lunch in some, you know, lovely little Parisian cafe. And uh, Fitzgerald is, like, noticeably distraught. And Hemingway is like, bro, what's up? Uh, you don't seem super into this lunch we're having. 
And Fitzgerald is like, okay, so me and Zelda were fighting again and Hemingway's like, big surprise. And he's like, yeah, well, she said that I shouldn't ever think of leaving her because I'll never be able to satisfy a woman because my dick is tiny. Hemingway, my buddy, my pal, my bro, will you look at my dick and tell me it's okay? And what did Hemingway do? Hemingway said, and this is a literal from the story that he wrote, or the account, I mean, that he wrote. He says, well, let's step into my office. And then they go into the men's bathroom. And then Hemingway looks his dick up and down and he says, nah, you, you're fine. This is good. Look, um, it just looks small to you because you're looking at it from above. Obviously. It's the optics. What you should do is you should go to the Louvre, look at all the dicks on the statues, and you'll realize that, oh, this is, no, I got a normal, I got a normal dick, just like these dicks. And, you know, you really could have just, like, gone and asked a doctor if this is so much of a problem for you. And Fitzgerald said, nah, bro, I wanted to ask you. Now, I have to stop you here. Was Hemingway not looking at the dick from above? I, I don't know what angle. He does not specify what angle that he viewed Fitzgerald's dick from. I mean, it might have been the side. It might have been, like, an underneath kind of view unfortunately we will never know and a lot of people think that Hemingway made this story up to be like oh look at insecure little F. Scott Fitzgerald who needs to come to me and ask about his penis which I will lovingly gaze upon in a very hetero way war changes men (laughs) (laughs) you. you did you did no that was good um and that's, that's my favorite F. Scott Fitzgerald story. And it might not even be true. Oh, well. I have a better F. Scott Fitzgerald story. Better than Hemingway appraising his dick? Yes. Go for it. So Zelda wasn't F. Scott's first great love interest. No, there was a woman named Ginerva King. Ginerva. That's, Ginerva. That's rough. We thought Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald was bad. This is a name from the early 20th century. Uh. Maybe she went by... Gina. Genie. Ginny. We can only guess as it's been lost to time. That was totally worth that was a that was an avenue totally worth going down, but continue. Who knows? Maybe you had some gold to give me. I guess not. Continue with your great story. So Francis and Geneva met uh, each other while they were attending Princeton and Francis was also smitten with Ginerva. The problem was is Ginerva came from a very wealthy family and she kind of liked the attention Francis gave her but she was never really into him and at one point while they were courting Francis got pulled aside by, um, by Ginerva's dad. He said you know there's a reason why poor boys shouldn't court rich girls. Oh sick burn. Eventually, Ginerva moved on past Francis and married a businessman, and then divorced the first businessman and married a second businessman. This, of course, hurt Francis, who could just never compete. He apparently tried. He would throw parties. The two of them took part in what I came across to learn were called sledding parties. I couldn't get a clear definition of what a sledding party is. I would assume it involves sledding, unless this is a euphemism for, like, an orgy down a hill but so the two of them did keep in touch for their entire life um and 
towards the end of Francis's life, the last time the two of them actually came in contact with each other, this was about 20 years after The Great Gatsby was written, Ginerva asked Francis, you know, you said that you based a character on me, and so in The Great Gatsby, who was it that you based on me? At which point, Francis looked at her and said, I quote directly, which bitch do you think you are? Even sicker burn. Oh my god, that is just beautiful levels of petty. I can't believe that's the same man who would be insecure about his own wiener, but I guess that would have been like pretty far along in the future at that point. I don't know, that's, that's good. That's good for the soul right there. Alright, we're not gonna top that, so let's not waste any more time. Let's get into what makes The Great Gatsby so great. Or not. I don't know. So, the uh, entire story of The Great Gatsby is filtered through the perception of a basic Midwest boy named Nick Carraway, who claims that his dad taught him not to judge people, and so that makes him the perfect objective protagonist. And I know this is an audio medium, but I want to make it clear that I'm using air quotes. Scare quotes. Yeah, that, yes. Midwestern quotes. Midwestern quotes. Basically, Nick Carraway is the guy at a party who says that he doesn't smoke weed, and it's like, okay, that's fine, except that he feels the need to tell as many people as he can over and over again that, no, it's totally fine if they get high, but he, he just doesn't do that sort of thing. But he doesn't judge. So the story starts in the Roaring Twenties, with Nick moving to Long Island to do some boring money job thing. He lives in the neighborhood of West Egg, which is across the bay from East Egg, which are weird names for neighborhoods, but, you know, everybody was dancing the Charleston and calling each other old sport and all that, so I guess it's not that weird in context. Fitzgerald does kind of try to justify it with some half-assed thing about how these areas looked kind of like smushed eggs on a map, and it's like, yeah, sure, Francis, okay, whatever you say. Could have been worse, there could have been... Middle egg. <laughs> no one wants to be living middle egg. <laughs> so East Egg is where all the old money people live. In, like, Tudor mansions and, like, wearing monocles and breeding hounds and that sort of thing. And West Egg is where the new money people live in, like, their giant McMansions throwing sick-ass ragers and blaring EDM until, like, 3 in the morning. So we're talking Long Island versus Manhattan. Pretty much, yeah, except... This is all Long Highland, I think, in the context of the story. Should probably know that, but whatever. <laughs> so even though Nick lives on West Egg, he has some swanky East Egg connections in his cousin, Daisy Buchanan. He visits Daisy and her dick husband, Tom, for a dinner party with a lady golfer named Jordan. Uh, Tom spends most of the party being racist and trying to convert them to white supremacy, and Jordan spends most of it being bored and snarky. It is a super lame dinner party, and no one plays EDM or does a single keg stand. It sucks. I thought the 20s were roaring. No, the, not an East Egg. The, there, the 20s were just sort of murmuring gently. Um, Jordan leaves because the party sucks, and Tom and Daisy are like, Nick, you and Jordan should date and have babies and stuff, but Nick's not interested in that. No, Nick is interested in his weird neighbor who stands at the edge of the dock every night just sort of making grabby hands at the water. What a weirdo. I'm sure he won't be thematically significant in any way. He made grabby things at the water? No, yeah, it says. It says with his arm, it literally says in the book, with his arms reaching toward the water. So, like, he's just standing there going, me. <laughs> I'm beginning to think 
this unnamed person may be a zombie. <laughs> that would that would put an interesting uh, spin on it. We've had Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. We could have the Great Gatsby zombie. It's not out of the question. But unfortunately, instead of learning more about whatever's going on with all that, Nick goes with Tom to a place called the Valley of Ashes, where the poor people live, because F. Scott Fitzgerald is subtle. So the people like F. Scott Fitzgerald. No, no, these people aren't writing or creating or anything. They're doing menial jobs, like cleaning ashes and fixing cars. So everyone here is capital P poor and capital D desperate. And at least one Myrtle wanted the big D. And Nick's like, what's with that big old billboard of the spectacled eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg and nothing else staring endlessly at all of creation and judging me for my life choices? And Tom's like, I don't know. And I'm sure it doesn't mean anything. Just, you know, just pretend it's not there. And Nick's like, okay. Anyway, Tom takes Nick to gross poor people town so Nick can watch him make fun of a mechanic dude named George Wilson, whose wife Myrtle, as you just may have figured out, Tom is having an affair with. Tom then takes Myrtle and Nick to the city to the special apartment he keeps for all his extramarital fucking, and they proceed to have a sick party after all. Except Tom freaks out and breaks Myrtle's nose when she starts talking about his wife Daisy. And... Nick pieces out because, like, what the fuck, Tom? You invited me to watch you drink and make out with your mistress? You seriously do not understand how socializing works, Tom? Jesus. While Nick was trying to hide his erection. Oh, yeah, well, that goes without saying. Finally, finally, we leave these idiots alone for a while because Nick is invited to a Gatsby party. And it's super swanky. And nobody seems to actually know anything about the host. And they're all spreading rumors like, I heard Gatsby was a spy in the war. I heard he once killed a dude just to watch him die. And so on and so forth. Um, I like to think of Gatsby himself wandering around the party being like, I heard Gatsby was the hottest man in New York and he has an eight pack and six girlfriends. I'm trying to think of something I can say. Hopefully something good. I don't know. Why do you write your jokes ahead of time, Megan? <laughs> Why can't you just let it be organic, Megan? <laughs> I don't sound like that. <laughs> My name's RJ and this is what I sound like. <laughs> so Gatsby's party's actually pretty dope, but since Nick is anti-fun, he and Jordan, who's also at the party, decide to try to find Gatsby. Instead, they find a dude with big glasses who Nick, instead of, like, you know, asking his fucking name, decides to call Owl Eyes. And they find him in Gatsby's library just, like, hanging out by himself reading Gatsby's books like a creeper. And they're just like, alright, we're gonna, we're gonna go. And they head back to the party and, oh shit, there's Gatsby! And he's all like, hello old sport, welcome to my party. Are you impressed with my party? Please say you like my party. No. Oh. Gatsby's very fragile. Now, as we know... Nick is too much of a dumb baby for parties, but he is immediately into Gatsby in what is assuredly a super hetero fashion. In fact, just so we know how very straight he is, he spends an enormous chunk of time telling us that he's now dating Jordan and just so into her, even though she cheats at golf. And she lies, and she's mean. But, you know, Nick doesn't judge. She's about putting balls in holes. No, any means necessary. Hole in one. Four... Please, please stop saying golf. You're just saying golf things at this point. She steps into the box and approaches the ball. No, this is all going to get cut. Why do you make me do this? She looks out into the fairway. The daisies are in bloom this time of season. And she rears back and takes a swing. Oh, look at that. A lovely shot down straight in the middle of the fairway. Are you done? Are you finished? 
can we move on with our with our podcast about literature? Anyway, Nick and Gatsby start hanging out, and Gatsby tells Nick that he's super rich and great and been all over the world and hunted big game and collected diamonds and are you impressed with me, old sport? Do you like me yet? Gatsby's a little desperate. He takes Nick to lunch with a dude named Meyer Wolfsheim, who looks shifty and unsavory to Nick because anti-Semitism. It's a thing. That means he was a Jew. There are insinuations that Gatsby and Wolfsheim do dark and illegal things together, and Nick is just like, Can someone please just hang out with me normally without taking me to, like, meet their mistress or their money launderer or whatever? God! He just wants to find someone to play a good old game of hopscotch. That's cute. Anyway, so it turns out uh, during all this that Gatsby is super in love with Daisy and that they used to love each other way back when they were chillins. But when Gatsby left to go fight in the war, she married Tom instead because Tom was financially stable. This is starting to sound familiar. And so Gatsby bought his mansion because it's across the bay from Daisy and he could spend every night on the dock making his weird grabby hands at her because he's weird. So once he realizes that Nick and Daisy are cousins, he wants to do this sitcom plot shit where Nick invites Daisy over for tea and then who just happens to show up but Jay Gatsby? Wow, so weird. What a coincidence. Who used to be known as Jay Gats. We're not up to that part of the book yet. We're not there yet. No. Good job. I didn't know where that happens. (laughs) Not yet. That's where... So, they do the sitcom plot, and it's super awkward, so Nick just kind of leaves them there, but he comes back, like, half an hour later, and everything's great, which means that they probably banged, like, the second Nick left the room, and then Gatsby makes them come to his house so he can show them all the expensive things he owns, and all of the, like, wonderful, expensive shirts from England, and he's throwing them out everywhere, and Daisy cries because she's never seen such beautiful shirts. That's, that's not a joke, that's a thing that happens in the book. And it honestly makes a lot more sense in the context of Fitzgerald writing this as revenge. Like, empty-headed bitch crying over my fancy shirt. Yeah, that's right. I cry when I walk into Big and Tall and find a shirt that fits me. Aww. (laughs) That wasn't that funny. That just gave you cute kind of an emotion. (laughs) So Nick worries that Gatsby, over the years, might have created this sort of wonderful, idealized version of Daisy that the real crying-over-shirts and married-to-a-racist-Daisy just can't live up to. But everybody seems happy, so he's like, alright, whatever. And at this point, Nick pauses the story to let us know that Gatsby is actually James Gats, and that he used to be poor and is from North Dakota, and then met a rich dude on a yacht who taught him how to act wealthy. How does one teach one to act wealthy? Well, apparently to throw lots of super sick parties and call everyone old sport. Was this wealthy man Willard Mitt Romney? No. Mm-hmm. That that timeline doesn't add up at all. Mitt Romney is, is not like a obscenely old or dead man. It's like he didn't even try. Was it C. Montgomery Burns? Yes. Yes, it was. That's a reference no one gets. Move on. Some people might get it. I don't know. It's, it's still... The Simpsons is still a thing. It's still on TV. Uh, meanwhile, back in the plot proper, Tom is getting suspicious of Daisy being over at Gatsby's house all the time and starts going to Gatsby parties with her and just generally killing the mood. 
Like, Nick goes out of his way to say that Tom's presence alone makes the party shittier. And Gatsby's just like, why is my money not fixing this, Nick? Nick, why won't my money make Tom disappear? What the hell, Nick? And so it all culminates with Daisy, Tom, Nick, Jordan, and Gatsby, the totally not awkward fifth wheel, hanging out in the city on the hottest day of the year when Tom confronts Gatsby about liking Daisy and it's like super high school and they basically just wag their dicks at each other and Tom's just like, well, my dick is an old money dick and that means it's better and also Gatsby's dick is a bootlegger. (sighs) Gasp. Did anyone invite Hemingway? (laughs) I call him the referee. (laughs) The old man in the schlongs. You just had a bunch of jokes ready for this. You know what I didn't do? (laughs) Write him ahead of time. (laughs) (laughs) Or Megan. Yeah, that's all you got. You couldn't even come up with with that joke joke on the fly. (laughs) Anyway... Daisy just basically kind of gives in, and she's just like, well, I mean, I can't be seen with a filthy nouveau riche bootlegger, so I guess I'm with Tom for good. And Tom's like, you know what? You two can even drive home together in the same car without me. I don't even give a fuck. That's how powerful my hold is over Daisy. Tom's an asshole. Uh, So here's the thing. There's a weird plot contrivance here um, that, and I don't, it, it makes very little sense, And the plot functions just fine without it, so I don't know why he did it, but they drove each other's cars to the city for absolutely no reason. Tom's just like, hey, I'm gonna drive your car with, like, Nick and Jordan. You could drive, like, my car with Daisy, I guess. But they go back home in Gatsby's car. And um, while they're driving back home, Myrtle, who you may remember as Tom's mistress, sees the car, thinks it's Tom, because I guess she saw him driving in the car earlier. Again, why did they swap cars? I don't know. And she runs into the street, gets hit by the car, and dies. And so Wilson assumes that this was done by Myrtle's lover, that she was running out into the street to meet her lover, and <laughs> And even though he never manages to put together that the person she was cheating on him with was Tom, because he's an idiot, like, Tom would just show up and be like, I'm taking your wife to the city, you just be like, okay. Eventually, Nick finds out that Daisy was, in fact, the one driving the car that hit Myrtle, but Gatsby will take the blame because he's an idiot and doesn't realize that Daisy is pretty much over him. Nick tells Gatsby to maybe forget about Daisy, and Gatsby is all, No, Nick, I love her, don't you understand? I can't name a single basic personality trait she has, but I love her. No, you don't have a joke for that one. I'm trying to figure out why they switch cars. There isn't a reason. You keep keep looking. You keep looking. They, they, they switch because it's a plot contrivance. They In, in story, they don't have a fucking Apparently, reason. Apparently Tom hoped for some reason that Daisy would get in the car Tom was driving. Because he, like, no. he was driving Gatsby's car. Yeah. That's, so, that's dumb, though. That's so dumb. Uh, so Wilson learns eventually that the car was Gatsby's because it's a big yellow banana dick car. And you know how many of those are out and about in the 20s. It was called the Chiquita Mobile. <laughs> Um, so he goes to Gatsby's house and shoots him in his pool and then kills himself as well. So, worst pool party ever. Nick tries to arrange Gatsby's funeral, but no one really bothers to show up except Gatsby's dad and Owl Eyes, whose name Nick still doesn't know because he's terrible. Later, 
uh, Nick runs into Tom in New York, who admits that he tipped Wilson off to Gatsby, and man, it sure sucked that he couldn't have sex with his mistress in his illicit sex apartment anymore, and Nick's just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm going back to Minnesota or wherever it is that I came from. And so Nick decides that the East Coast is bad and ruins people, except Gatsby, because he was pretty and in love and threw sick parties. Also, fuck the American dream. The end. And that's pretty much The Great Gatsby. And that's pretty much The Great Gatsby. Well, Megan, maybe Great Gatsby wasn't so great. At least not at the time of publishing. You see, the book kind of was a dud. No kidding. Yeah, at least back in the 20s when it was written. So the plot was all based in 1922. The book was written in 1925. And when it came out, nobody wanted to read it. A little... little too too soon, too close to home for people to get into? Maybe. A lot of reviewers didn't seem to understand the book, perhaps because they were in the middle of the Roaring Twenties at the time, that they all kind of took it at face value, that they just didn't understand why this writer, who sometimes seems to be cynical of the Twenties and extravagance, wrote a book, in their point of view, celebrating the extravagance. They didn't kind of understand anything in the book. I guess the bar to be a reviewer was a lot lower then, huh? I mean, it feels like it's pretty straightforward. Like, everybody who's super into uh, partying and being in New York and, and getting their thing on are all horrible, horrible people. It's, it's not that. It's, pre it's pretty black and white. <laughs> or green, which you left out in your summary, that one of the things a lot of people pick at is the green light that Gatsby's always reaching for at the end of Tom and Daisy's stock and he's never quite able to get it. I mean, it's not that he's never quite able. It's all the way across the bay. He never had a chance of getting it, which, yes, is part of the metaphor. And a reviewers at the time seemed to believe that Fitzgerald was trying to get the audience to think you should strive for your own green light and never give up <laughs> because that's the American dream. How do you not get, how do you miss the point by such a monumentally huge margin? Like, what part of that book is like, yeah, folks, reach for your own green light. Maybe you too will end up dead at the bottom of a pool. Now, in the years since, as people revisited The Great Gatsby after the 20s and after The Great Depression, we look at it as more of a cynical kind of book making fun of and poking a finger in the eye of the people at the center of the book. Um, that's not to say our generation seems to understand Gatsby either, as everywhere you look nowadays, there's Gatsby-themed parties. And as one reviewer of one of the more recent movies, the Baz Luhrmann movie... We'll get to that. Um, they pointed out that throwing a Gatsby party, it's, quote, like throwing a Lolita-themed children's birthday party... Wow. I mean, that's pretty on the nose, but I get what they're going for there. So we went from the 20s where people thought the book was celebrating excess to nowadays where maybe serious literary thinkers understand what's going on, but the lay people think it's celebrating excess and we should celebrate the book. Or they just like to celebrate excess in general. And also, like, when else are you going to get to wear a flapper costume, RJ? I mean, apart from the way you do. Every Thursday night, when you dance around the living room. I do that for you. I know. Now, when the book actually became popular, it was actually after World War II. Now, at this point, sadly, 
uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald had already passed away, and when troops were returning home from Germany, they were given free copies of The Great Gatsby. So they were literally giving The Great Gatsby away because no one before the 1940s wanted to read the book, and all these troops are reading this book, finally understanding what this book is about, having just fought in war, seeing the... Uh, the, the horrors of war seeing the horrors of war and realizing that this book is making fun of all the rich people who actually didn't have to go overseas to fight the war and they kind of like the book now because they actually got it for free yeah yeah, yeah. i mean like that's interesting and all but like what i i really I want to know what led up to that. Where it's like, hey, welcome back to America. Way to, like, kick some Nazi ass. Here is your, like, stipend and whatnot. And here is your copy of The Great Gatsby. Of course. Well, part of the reason why they had so many copies is even by the time that Fitzgerald died in 1940, so 15 years after Gatsby was originally written and published, there were still unsold copies that were originally published in 1925 that were still unsold there were a lot of copies of this book just laying around oh my god what a bummer that sucks and they're just like well let's let's give them to these soldiers here take these books now, after world war ii the book began selling at the rate of 50,000 books a year and basically it's held on since then because it's become required reading for basically every high schooler um to help them understand partially history of the 1920s and then also as a literary book and and what it should be as an example of the best kind of petty revenge ever when it comes to the title itself the great gatsby i was surprised to learn there were a lot of different possible titles now apparently francis hated the title the great gatsby he Oh, what did he want? Please, lay, 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 lay some okay. lay some titles on me. Well, so three weeks before the book was set to be published, he wanted to change the name of the book to Under the Red, White, and Blue. Well, that, that's, that's dumb. Other titles that Fitzgerald used while he was working on uh, different giraffes of the Great Gatsby were Among the Ash Heaps and Millionaires. Eh, right, a little on the nose, but sure. Trimalchio in West Egg. I don't get that reference. Gold-Hatted Gatsby. That's just dumb. The High-Bouncing Lover. Uh, what? I think that's if Tom was a trapeze artist. Ah, there we go. The story that never was. On the Road to West Egg. No, you're already at West Egg. And simply, Gatsby. Like Madonna. Also, whenever I think of The Great Gatsby, I think of the original cover art of the book, which the big crying eyes, um, which might be reminiscent of the billboard that's referred to in the book. Apparently, Francis hated the cover art. So did he just hate all good things? Like, I, I have that book cover on a t-shirt. The eyes fit right over my boobs. <laughs> Another person who really hated the cover art and referred to it as the worst cover art they'd ever seen, Ernest Hemingway. Well, that probably just means he was jealous. Let's be real. Now, so when the book originally didn't sell all that well in the 20s, Francis had to blame 
everything except his own writing style. Of course. He blamed the title. Just the worst. What, what, the High Bouncing Lover, come on, guys. Under the red, white, and blue. Um, which, honestly, I think if that was the title that he had gone with, it might have been easier for people in the 20s to understand the irony. I don't know. Based off what you told me, they, they kind of had some trouble getting the message. Fitzgerald also blamed it on the cover art. What would, Does it say at all what he would have wanted? Something different. He also blamed the poor sales on the fact that, at least what he says is that he felt he had no important female characters for women in the book. And at the time, women controlled the fiction market, which ignores the fact that Daisy is probably the biggest character in the book. Yeah, but she's a complete empty vessel who has absolutely no agency on her behalf. So, I mean, I'm kind of with Fitzgerald on this one. Like, yeah, there's really, as a, as a young, enterprising female of, of the uh, 20s, there's not much for me to latch onto there. Hmm, do I like the lady who plays golf and is a bitch, or do I like the lady with no personality traits who frequently forgets that she has a kid? The one who puts it in the hole. Badoom. Originally, Fitzgerald played around with the idea of having Gatsby set in the Midwest and not New York. That wound up not coming to fruition. There were earlier essays and short stories that Fitzgerald wrote that are arguably kind of based on the character of Gatsby about a Midwestern kind of guy raised by a preacher and then gets into trouble and wants to become rich. It's like a Flannery O'Connell novel. Mm -hmm. But in the end, none of that mattered because they decided to give the book away to veterans for free. And such is such is the legacy of F. Scott Fitzgerald, I guess. <laughs> if you can't beat him, give it away to veterans for free. Yes. So, uh, in terms of adaptation, there's actually not a lot going on here. Um, people really haven't tried to do much with uh, the Great Gatsby. There's a there's a TV movie with Paul Rudd, but even though that's hilarious, I'm not really going to go into that. The the two big the big ones are there's a 1974 adaptation that stars Robert Redford as a very sweaty Jay Gatsby and Sam Watterson as an equally sweaty Nick Carraway and then also Mia Farrow as Daisy. We watched this in my 10th grade English class because my teacher had a crush on Robert Redford. You mean The Natural? Yes, that reference that no one's going to get. I mean that. <laughs> I don't know, like, what Robert Redford joke should I throw in? I don't know, maybe something about sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just gonna go with, uh, what's the name of the spy movie? Shit, what was that called? Spy Game! You mean the guy from Spy Game? <laughs> yes, that Robert Redford. Deep cuts. <laughs> the deepest. Um, it's good enough. But honestly, kind of disappointingly by the numbers for a 70s movie. Like, there's no weird psychedelic crazy bits or anything. Um, one thing that is interesting is originally they had Truman Capote uh, working on the screenplay. And he had decided to write Nick as explicitly gay for Gatsby. Which, let's be real, it's there. It's, it's, it's not a reach. You know, it's, you know, you, you could see it. Uh, but anyway, they fired him, and they brought Francis Ford Coppola into Ungay It, and that was pretty much that. And then there's the most recent adaptation by Baz Glorious Lunatic Lerman from 2013. When the trailer opens with Kanye's No Church in the Wild, you know you're in for some good shit. I hope you're all wearing your sunscreen. 
Again, a reference that literally no one is going to get. Oh, sorry. Don't be sad. I still love you. I got it. Yeah, so I'm a no one get it. I mean, I know you're a nobody, but come on. Ouch. Leonardo DiCaprio plays the titular Gatsby, and Tobey Maguire plays... Thanks. Tobey Maguire plays Nick, and Carrie Mulligan is Daisy. So Lerman's version is a slick, glitzy production. It just, it looks amazing, and, you know, everybody acts in it just fine. It still is also kind of disappointingly by the numbers. It, it pretty much just uh, plays the hits. Um, everyone's also sweaty in this one, too. So, like, maybe being sweaty is the real cost of the American dream. It was the 20s. Air conditioning hasn't been invented yet. Stop ruining my jokes with facts. But, and I say this with utter sincerity, the best adaptation of The Great Gatsby is probably cartoonist Kate Beaton's series of Great Gatsby comics that have been circling the internet for years and are amazing, and also it was really hard for me to not just straight-up steal jokes from her. Like, they're they're great. You can see them on her website, uh, Harka Vagrant, or you can literally just Google Kate Beaton Great Gatsby and you'll just see why she's amazing, and I love her. Please, he, RJ is showing me uh, cast poster, character posters from the 2013 Great Gatsby movie, and he keeps pointing to the one of Meyer Wolfsheim suggestively and making faces. I don't know what point he's trying to make. Well, it's really important. I don't know if you know the story behind this. But when they marketed the movie globally, oh yeah, I do know this. Go ahead. The <laughs> poster that they used outside of America was of the Wolfsheim character, who was played. I don't want to completely butcher this man's name. Just, just give it your best shot. Amitabh Bashan, who is basically the Robert De Niro of the Indian Bollywood scene, and so you might have noticed that Megan only mentioned what's his name. Wolfsheim. <laughs> Wolfsheim. Once in her whole synopsis. Because he's in there for about, like, and he's in the movie for about, like, five minutes. Literally two mentions of him in both the book and the movie. I actually looked this up. But the way they marketed the film overseas, you would have thought Wolfsheim is either Great Gatsby or the co-lead. Gotta, gotta sell tickets somehow. People were very upset. When their big Indian actor was in the film for maybe a total of one minute. Ouch. Thanks, Baz. <laughs> you jerk ass. <laughs> Anything for a buck. That's the story of the Great Gatsby in a <laughs> nutshell. Pretty much. Um, so now as we uh, near the end of the, of the episode, RJ, Great Gatsby, good or bad? Good. I swear to God, you better provide some explanation or I'm going to hit you. <laughs> Meg, good or bad? You suck. Alright, so here's the thing. When I first read The Great Gatsby in high school, I actually enjoyed it. Um, I mean, it wasn't super relevant to my life at all, but there was definitely something enjoyable about watching these, just, or reading these sort of wealthy people be terrible to each other and be so dramatic and ridiculous and over the top. Like, there was definitely an entertainment value there. It was like reading a soap opera. In fact, that was actually how our English teacher sold it to us. She's like, you're gonna read this crazy nutball soap opera and it's gonna be great. And it was. Uh, but now, as an adult, uh, having to reread it again for this, I actually kind of hated a bunch. Why? 
Because it's like watching, like, Keeping Up with the Kardashians or something. It's like watching reality TV. It's just people with way more money than you just being dicks because they can. No, I actually do enjoy The Great Gatsby. I think I read it for the first time back in high school, then I read it again when I took a history class in college. It does have one of my favorite closing lines in a book, which I have in front of me. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. The image it just paints in my mind, I really like. I always like the image of the green light. I just like the view that Fitzgerald has. Um, I don't get the Kardashian sense of it as Megan does. I think it pokes the eye and all that. I still think it's a very relevant book for the people who actually understand what's going on in it. And I think the point that Fitzgerald's trying to make I do find a lot of the characters to be real to life, that there are people who, kind of like Daisy, are just caught up in showy things and will cry over how beautiful a shirt is. And there will be the crazy people who love those people despite them being so shallow. And so I do find it very human in the end. And having learned about Fitzgerald and his own upbringing, I kind of like that it's him getting back at that bitch who turned him down for two different businessmen because... Fitzgerald wasn't all that rich during his own life. I mean, okay, so yeah, just th there, there are definitely real people who act like Daisy and real people who fall in love with people like Daisy, like Gatsby, but just like Nick Carraway, I don't necessarily want to hang out with them for very long. And that about wraps things up here at Oh No Lit Class. Please remember to uh, subscribe to us on iTunes because you love us and you're our friend and that's a thing that friends do. And also check us out on Facebook and on social media that we're totally going to get around to, but so far still only have ohnolitclass.tumblr.com. We'll probably have ohnolitclass on Twitter by the time this comes out. Uh, we'd like to thank Best Day for the use of his song Man of the Year Heavy Sleep that we use as our intro. If you like that, you can check out more of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash best dash day. And she approaches the tea box, approaching the ball. She looks down the fairway. Silence in the crowd. This has been Oh No Lit Class. At the tenth tee. <laughs> I'm Megan. The wind is blowing at ten miles an hour across the fairway. He is RJ. We love you. Bye. I have a baby dick.